It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. One thing I haven't told my guests yet is that I really resonated with the description of who he is when I first read about him, because it reminds me of two of my uncles and one of their names shares the names of the guest, which is David. My uncle David and my uncle Douglas have been really into cycling for as long as I can remember. It's a big part of what I think about them as human beings is, is the biking trips that they've taken. My uncle Douglas in particular has a story that I feel really moved by because he's done a lot of long biking trips for causes. And he developed Parkinson's disease. I can't remember how what year that was, but I'm going to guess somewhere between the past 15 to 20 years ago. And so he became very determined to embrace his body and celebrate his body, but also support other people. So David, your story really spoke to me because you do so much work around connecting with people that are going through trauma, a lot of physical ailments, doing a lot of cycling. And I want to hear all about it because it really moves me on a personal level because of my two uncles. So thank you for coming on here. And I can't wait to learn what you have found through all your cycling. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, that's really nice. I'm glad you shared that. You know, it's kind of a Zen thing when you go for long bike rides. It really is. And I didn't know that going into becoming an endurance athlete, that endurance athletics is kind of Zen, right? I I didn't know that. But it definitely, I found that that's where I do my best thinking is on super long runs and super long bike rides. I know some people check out because they meditate or they do yoga or they go for a swim or they cook or they read a magazine or whatever. But I feel like that's short term. If you just, if you've ever tried to meditate, meditating for 15 minutes is different than meditating for an hour, which is different than meditating for two days straight. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, you get deep when you go for hours and hours or days and days and days. You really start to peel away the layers and really get to the essence of who you are and, and what you're experiencing. So for me, that's a added and wonderfully uh, surprising benefit of endurance athletics is is really good for the mind. Oh, I bet. The closest I can relate to that is cross-country road trips. Even though I'm not moving my body in that. <laughs> In that sense, it still requires a lot of focus to stay safe. And that's what I'm thinking of as you're talking about this. I I just feel like being on the road, especially when I'm on my own and seeing all this nature pass by or passing by all the nature, I suppose, puts me in this zone that's unlike anything else. And it's almost addicting. Like I feel like I, I just can't wait to get back in the car. 
And it's also interesting because I don't feel compelled to do long distance <laughs> movements like that. Like the, although it kind of runs in my family, obviously with my uncles, I just have never been that drawn to running or biking. I've been drawn to swimming, but kind of more casual. And it's kind of interesting. I know, especially because your story is about the transition and, and, and evolving into somebody who enjoys those things. So I'm curious what your journey has been. Were you always interested in this or did this come up for you over time? And if so, what was the spark that ignited that within you? And no, I was definitely not always interested in it. You know, um, I say I do a lot of things really, really well, but what I didn't do well until I got into my late thirties was to have an understanding of taking a deep look at myself. Like I like to tell people, I go, man, I have, and I'm sure everybody has, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm any, any special, but I've learned ridiculous lessons, right? I mean, I was robbed at gunpoint of everything that I owned when I was 18 years old and was living out of my car, right? You learn from that. I ran a hundred million dollar business for a major Wall Street firm. You learn from that, right? I learned all these crazy lessons in life, but my biggest problem was I never applied any of them to myself. So I could go all day long and be a great, great leader, a great manager, a great mentor, a great whatever, because I had learned all these lessons, but I never turned around and looked at the guy in the mirror and applied the lessons to myself. And that was a big blind spot for myself. I don't know if that resonates with anyone, but it did with me. And I found myself in my late thirties, I had four-year-old twins. I was in a terribly dangerous and not healthy marriage. And I needed to get me and my kids out of that marriage into safety. And we did. Um, and I was overweight. I was a smoker. I was, you know, I was kind of happy in life, but kind of miserable, stressed out with who I was and who I'd become. And I just was this welling feeling in me that, that definitely on the wrong path. And for me on the wrong path is I just didn't know anything about myself. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I was supposed to be doing in life. I didn't know anything. I, I learned a lot. I just never, you know, applied it to me. So I literally, I'm not even exaggerating. I literally, when we were at safety, I literally stood in front of the mirror and was like, dude, like, honestly, like, who are you? Like, like, who are you and who do you want to be? And I said that to myself over and over and over, like an idiot standing in front of a mirror until I really heard the question, right? Instead of, you know, I'd live my whole life trying to say, Hey, I got to be a certain way because, you know, I, my boss wants me to be that way. Or I, I put myself into bad relationships and I go, Oh, I got to be the guy to fix the bad relationship or, you know, because or I got, I got to make people happy, or this is what I think they want from me. I never, ever, ever asked the guy in the mirror. And when I did, I went, mm, well, you know what? Why don't you try to be healthy? You got young kids, you want to live a long life. So why don't you try to be healthy? Why don't you quit smoking? Why don't you be healthy? Why don't you like maybe start to become athletic and see if, see if that's something that you want to do? So it was strictly a long answer, but strictly by accident that I came into this and it just was, I was in a period of extreme stress and a very, very low point in my life personally. And I just said, man, you got, you got to take an assessment and you got to figure out who are you and who do you want to be? 
because I had no idea on either of those questions. That is really remarkable, especially when you're sharing the story of of what happened to you at the age of 18. I feel like a lot of people have those moments and those are the wake-up calls. I'm kind of curious to go back to that with something that would typically feel very traumatic, you know, being, do you say robbed at gunpoint? Is that right? Yeah. So, and again, I'm not, I'm not telling you this to say it's any more or less traumatic than anybody else. It's just my experience. But I, I grew up in a not a great household. Uh, my parents were 40 years age difference. So when I was born, my mom was only 21. My dad was nearly 60. So big difference in age. So I had a mom that was too young for kids and didn't want him anyway. And a dad that was too old for kids probably didn't want him anyway. And so it was just me and my sister and, you know, pretty traumatic. You know, I grew up in a time when you, you don't ask questions, you don't talk back, you don't whatever. It's just not a safe, it was not a safe place. And some, some things, you know, some very not happy things happened in my childhood. Like I think what happens with most kids, but I left home at 18 and a couple of days after I left home, yeah, I got robbed at gunpoint of everything and I didn't have anybody to call and I had 56 cents in my pocket and and a carton of cigarettes and that's what I lived on until I could find a job and you know, have somebody take me in and it was it was traumatic, but but my my point is is that I felt like my whole life I was just trying to figure out a way to survive. Like I was not living on purpose. I was living in reaction to the things that were going on in my life. So if I got a decent job, I would work twice as hard as everybody because I got to get ahead, right? I got to take action, right? And then when it came to relationships, I'm like, oh, well, you had a crappy relationship with your mom. So why don't you go find more, you know, screwed up women that you could try to fix, right? So every relationship was a angry bitter person that I tried to change them. But I didn't know this at the time. I learned this later. And I just realized, you know, that that when I when I did step back and take a look at myself, I did realize that I hadn't done that ever. I never kind of f- felt how I fit in the world, where my sense of self was. Do you know, like I was always in self-preservation mode not like self-awareness mode, right? I'm not working twice as hard because I got the big picture of how to get ahead. I'm working twice as hard because everybody else went to college and I didn't. And if I don't work twice as hard, I'm going to get fired. And what am I going to fall back on? Because I don't have family, right? So it was like desperation for me. And then finally, I just went, oh, you know, maybe you should, you should change your mind. Wow. I mean, it's no wonder you've become an author and a keynote speaker. <laughs> because <laughs> you're, you, I mean, it's really compelling hearing these things uh, and just seeing this journey that's evolved. And, and I think it's also really poignant in the sense that I feel like so many people have like one big moment and they attribute that moment to the big shift, right? And that's why I brought up what happened to you at 18, because it's been a number of things. And still, it took you time to evolve to this place where it does feel like a really big shift happened for you, going back to thinking about taking care of your body, you know, and and it's, it's really fascinating what it takes in our lives for us to make a big change for us to do a 180, you know, just to become something practically the opposite of who we were before or to evolve to another level. 
And I'm also really fascinated about the people that you've met in your life and that you've essentially gotten to know and studied in a way to understand how trauma has impacted them. And it seems like you're very drawn to the physical and how that impacts the mental and emotional, right? So in your book, it is right where you're meeting with people in person through your cycling to understand their own trauma. Am I describing your book correctly? You're close, yes. And get to that in a second, but just go back to something that you were saying to make a transformation and you have that that aha moment. I didn't know it at the time, but I've I've learned over time that for me and a lot of people I talk to, this kind of resonates with them. Do you know these people like they're angry and they're just mean people and you wonder like, how did you ever get like that mean? Or they're just like really lazy and you're like, 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 don't say like, come on, man. I mean, don't you want to live a more purposeful life? You say this in your head or they're overweight or they're whatever. And you go like, it's so obvious, like for you to be able to make a change if you wanted to make a change, right? All those things were obvious about me, but I, until I knew, I didn't know. I didn't know I needed a change until I knew. So in retrospect, in order to make a big transformation in my mind, it's a three-step process. One step is you got to take a good, hard, honest look at yourself. I didn't do that until I was in my late 30s. And I, when I did take a long, hard, honest look at myself, I came up with some very, very disturbing things. One is I was always worried about fixing everybody else and never fixed myself. I had problems I had to deal with. I never dealt with them. Two, I was unhealthy. And I had to admit that I was overweight. I had to admit that I was you know, not active. I had to admit that I was not living the way that I should live. Okay. I had to come up with four or five other things that were honest assessments of where I was. I had to make the assessment. These are the bad things about you. These are the unhealthy things about you. These are the things that are wasting your life. These are the things you need to change. It's an honest, honest assessment. It's really hard to do. I got somebody in my life that uh, says to me, they're, they're 40 years old, they got four kids, and she goes, uh, I'm mean to my kids, but whatever, that's just me. I'm just a mean person. And I'm like, really? If you know that, freaking change, man. You got four kids, right? I can't say that to her, but I'm thinking that is not an excuse. I'm just a mean person. That's not an excuse. So number one is take an honest assessment. And I think the second one is the most important one. If you can make an honest assessment, which I hadn't, I wasn't able to do until late thirties, but if you can make an honest assessment, then number two is to free your mind and forgive yourself, which is a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to free your mind and also to forgive yourself. And what I mean by free your mind is for, forget about who you were, forget about the problems that you had, forget about the bad things you did, the stupid things you did, the time you wasted. Forget about making bad decisions. You didn't know any better at the time. Just forgive yourself. Just move on. Like, it's okay. You've got to live your life. And today you know this, so start living your life. Like, forget, don't have a chip on your shoulder. Don't look elsewhere. Don't look to the past. Today is the day. Just free your mind. It's a hard thing to do. Really hard to do. Because we oftentimes, when we take an honest assessment, we realize we're not real proud of who we are and some of the things we've done or haven't done. And so if you can be lucky enough to take an honest assessment and you can muster up the courage and the will to forgive yourself and just say, today's the day I'm going to start, you know, whatever, living that life. Then the third thing is 
You just got to be on a journey to learn. And if you already know the answer to every question, you already know the way things are going to work out. You already know the way the world works. You already know everything, right? It, then it's, it can't work. But if you can learn, if you can just look at every experience as a learning experience and strive for that learning, because if you already know everything, you might as well just forget it. You can't change, right? What are you going to change until you already know everything? So those are the three things. So I wanted to just say that because what you said was so important about aha moments. You only know what you know and you know it. And your trauma might be a big deal that transforms you. That same trauma in somebody else might be something that rolls out their back. It's some other little trauma that doesn't affect you that rocks their world. It's like trauma doesn't work in pretty little boxes. You know, I can laugh about this woman that pulled a gun on me and said, get the F out of my house. And I had to run out the window with nothing because I didn't have anything right? because I knew these people were going to kill me. Right now, I can laugh about that. It's no big deal. Right? At the time, maybe it was a big deal. It's no big deal. Some people are like, you know, that, that would be the defining moment in their life. Right. I'm just saying that if you. I don't look at trauma. I can't judge you for your trauma. You can't judge me for mine and um, we don't need to, but just when you know what you know, what you know, when you know it. That is so helpful. And it's actually very great for me to hear today <laughs> because I had an experience today that I, that's really been sitting with me that relates to this where actually based on a previous podcast episode, I had a a woman reached out to me sharing that what I said was painful for her. And she felt like the way that I phrased it was, I think she used the word diminished. And I just felt awful because I certainly didn't in intend it, but I had to step back and examine, like, to your point, what doesn't impact me may impact others. And I, I'm still grappling with with how do we go about life? Because each of us have our own traumas and our perspectives. And communication, relationships, even with strangers can be so challenging because they may respond to things completely different than us. And we, we're not always able to anticipate it. So I'm really curious about how what you've learned about that, given that you've spent so much time speaking with other people about trauma. You know, it's almost like I feel walking on eggshells or navigating landmines, you know, and maybe is it the people pleaser in me? Like, I don't want to hurt anybody. So when I find out that I have inadvertently hurt someone, it's really scary because it's like, oh, how do I do this? Is it possible to truly navigate other people's traumas or can we only navigate our own while being mindful that that? may trigger other people's traumas. Yeah, the latter. And you said it really eloquently because oftentimes we don't know what those traumas are. We don't know what's going on in people's head. We don't know how they're dealing with things. Any statement anybody makes is not a blanket statement because it can't apply to everyone, right? Some people have unimaginable trauma that there is no way to get over it. There's no way to put it into perspective. It's just unfortunate, right? There's no answer to some things. Right. Maybe some good could come from it years later. Maybe there's a silver lining years later, but maybe not. Okay. But in general, in general, everybody you're walking past in the day, everybody that you talk to has dealt with or is dealing with something that's traumatic. I, I don't care who it is they have. And you look at some people and like, 
you know, people are at my house right now. I got a beautiful house. I got two kids. They're grown kids. They're very happy. I got a beautiful wife, very successful. I love to cook. I'm very active. And people go, oh my God, your life's so perfect. They don't know what I'm dealing with. They don't know what I've gone through. Not, not that they need to, but it's like, we can't know their traumas. And the, the person that cuts you off, it might be that they're an asshole, but it also might be that they just got off the phone finding out that somebody that they know just died in a horrible car accident and they're freaked out, right? Now, I'm not saying I always think that when somebody cuts me off and I don't go, hey, asshole, right? But I try to go, you know what? They're, they're, they're people are going through stuff. They really, really are. And we don't know how it's affecting them. Back to the impetus for this book, what I came to learn is that especially with the emotional facets of trauma, now there's other things to deal with trauma. Let's say the trauma is cancer because that's the topic of, of this book. There is the trauma of I got to deal with work. I got to deal with my kids, my friends, my family. I got to deal with my care. I got to find doctors. I mean, there's a lot of different types of trauma, right? So what I'm saying is dealing with the the trauma itself is not necessarily dealing with the emotional facets of it. So how do I get my kids watched while I'm getting the chemo chair? How do I navigate insurance? How do I find a doctor? All of these things have nothing to do with the emotional side of it. And I noticed that patient, doctor, loved one, friend, survivor, you name it, are all dealing with emotional issues. And oftentimes those um, the emotional side of the trauma is not an easy thing to deal with. When I say that, this should resonate with anybody that's listening. Sometimes somebody will tell you something. Oh, you know, yeah, it's the most horrible thing. My uh, my uh, my uncle and his wife were in a, in a car accident and they both died. And you're like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. And then you want to exit the conversation because what the hell could I say? Right. And so we don't want to have these hard conversations. What do you say to somebody who has like my nephew just got diagnosed with cancer? Like, what the hell am I going to say? Right. And so these these conversations about the emotional side of it are so difficult. And I noticed that people were not really well equipped to form a deep connection with those around them in an authentic heart centered we care about each other. We're listening. I hear you. You hear me. If even for a moment about the emotional side, that's just not something that's that's very prevalent. I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but it's definitely at some level, you know, very much a factor of the trauma experience with trauma, especially with cancer, that it's difficult to discuss the emotional thing. Sorry for the long kind of rambling answer, but that was the impetus for the book is how can I tell stories in a way, and that was through interviewing people, but how can I tell stories in a way where, you know, Whitney could read it and go, or listen to it or whatever, and go, oh my gosh, yeah, I could apply that to my own life or to an experience that, that I've had. And maybe it'll give you a tool to have a form of a deeper connection with somebody that cares about you or that you care. That's such an important tool because I find myself even today, as I mentioned, like wanting somebody to guide me through difficult conversations, you know, like how do we respond? And I, I want to be proactive about it because that's one discomfort I really don't enjoy. It's like, what do you say when somebody shares something with you that you're unprepared to respond to? And it's actually an interesting thing too, because it's not only for you practicing the tools, but it's made me hyper aware of how other people respond 
to me or to others, like just observing how few people seem to have these tools. They don't have the knowledge of how to navigate. In fact, we actually have carried through in general some really bizarre responses to trauma, I would say. <laughs> like, you know, it's it's like even saying I'm sorry sometimes doesn't seem like the best words, right? Oftentimes it's the worst words, Whitney. Oftentimes it's the worst words because it's not your fault. What are you sorry for? It's just an excuse to exit the conversation. Probably second worst thing to say is at least, oh, well, at least, at least they lived a long life. Really? That's how you're going to tell me that when I said to you, my grandma just died. Oh, uh, how old was she? She was 93. Well, at least she lived a long life. What are you talking about? What does that mean? At least? Oh, oh, you lost your finger. Well, at least you have nine more fingers. What is at least, right? Well, oh, you went blind. Well, at least you have your health. No, I no. Stop saying at least, right? So at least doesn't work. I'm sorry. It doesn't work. Obviously comparing saying, oh, I know doesn't work either, right? Oh my gosh, yeah, it's just, I was out over this weekend because my grandma died, I was at her funeral. Oh my God, my cat died. I know what you're feeling. No, you don't, no, you don't. And oh, how about this? How about, oh, I know, oh my God, losing your grandma must be the worst thing in the world. Actually, my grandma was a total wreck. I hated her, she hated life. I'm glad she's dead. Like, how do you know? So I think, I'm sorry it doesn't work. I think at least doesn't work. I think I know doesn't work. None of those things work. They're all reasonable responses because we just don't know any better. And they are also cover for us to get out of the conversation because it's very uncomfortable. Most of the time, we don't want to make others feel bad. So we're better off not saying anything. I don't want to say the wrong thing. I don't want to say something at least because I know that's wrong. But right, oh, I don't want to say anything because I don't want to say the wrong thing. I feel you know, there's a million reasons why we don't have these conversations. And I'm not just saying towards the person that has the trauma, but the other way as well, right? Because I don't want to tell you something bad that's going on in my life because I don't want to make you feel guilty. I don't want to be ashamed. I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to burden you. I don't want to bring you down because you're having such a good day, right? Maybe I think you don't care enough. So there's a million reasons why we might not talk or have people talk to us, right? And what, what I wanted to do was to find out if we could gain some insight into how kind of younger adult and childhood traumas affect our ability or more likely our inability to navigate the emotional side of, of trauma. If I could tell those stories in a compelling, inspiring way, then we could go, oh, all right, that makes sense. Something's going to stick in my head. And next time I come across that situation, I might have a better understanding on, on how to have that conversation. Well, two questions come to mind as follow-ups to that. You know, one, of course, is what do you say? But before we get to that, I'm actually curious, what do you recommend when you say the wrong thing? What happens if you say something and you know when you share the words and you can see them land on somebody's face if they're an expressive person and they don't bottle it all up? Or we can just feel it like, oh, no, what I just said, I don't know if using the word right or wrong is good, but it, what we said did not make somebody feel good. What do you do then if you have the opportunity to recover from yeah, it? Yeah, it's tough, right? Because sometimes you just got to admit, 
I really said the wrong thing, didn't I? I mean, you really got to admit it. If you want to have a heart-centered connection with somebody, if you want to have an authentic connection with somebody and join them in that moment or over the years of closeness over this trauma, whatever that trauma might be, the answer is not what's, what's, what's the right thing to say. The answer is what are the right questions to ask because people aren't looking for us to give them answers. They're looking for us to give them a safe space to share. And so what I used to do, this is just an example. This is not applicable to every situation. It's maybe only applicable to a, a, a sliver of situations. But the previous me, before I got into this project and really, I think, gained a deeper understanding of how isolating trauma is for people, the previous me would have said something like, oh my gosh, I just found out that your significant other got cancer and I don't know what to say. So, oh my gosh, I'm really sorry. And if you need anything, please let me know. I'm here for you if you want to talk. And she said, I don't, okay, all right, bye. All right, now the me says, oh my God, tell me more. What's happening? How are you dealing with it? Not reach out if I can give you anything, but oh my God, what do you need done for you? Have you gone to the store lately? Do you need help organizing anything, right? Is there anything I can help you with? Do you, do you know that, do you know how to navigate medical insurance? Can I help you with that? Do you know how to find a good doctor? Oh my God, how are you feeling about that, right? It's asking questions, do you know? When I hear that somebody tells me in passing that they lost someone, I used to say, oh my God, I'm so sorry, that must be horrible, right? First of all, I'm not sorry because I had nothing to do with it. And second of all, I don't know that it's horrible. It might be the greatest thing in the world because maybe they were in so much pain that you wanted them to die. So now I say, oh my gosh, were you close? So-and-so just passed away. Oh my God, were you close? Or, oh my God, no, tell me more. Because if I care to be there with them in an authentic way, I'm going to ask questions. I'm not going to tell them well, at least this, or I know that, or I'm sorry, you're not going to tell them, you're going to ask questions. And that where it can lead you is just to these remarkable places of connectivity with people just by asking questions. And I've learned that you cannot say the wrong thing if you're doing it in an authentic way. You'll never have to apologize for saying the wrong thing. If you're doing it in an authentic way, let me give you an example. My sister was dying of brain cancer, and this was at a time when I started on this journey of going from, you know, no activity and unhealthy and smoker and whatever. And I'm down this path of living my life. At the same time period, my sister calls me and says, hey, I got terminal brain cancer. I'm going to die. So she's on this path to the end of her life, right? So we have these two separate paths. And she's got a beautiful marriage and two young kids and great circle of friends. And she's like living a wonderful life. I'm living a miserable life. And here I am starting to change that. And here she is having to deal with the fact that she's going to die. And, and one time she, she, she called me up and I saw it was her on the phone. I call her and I pick up and I go, I go, Hey, what's happening, June? How you, how you doing? And then I went, Oh my God, you're such an idiot. She's dying of cancer. What do you mean? How are you doing? Like, what's that's the stupidest question you could ever ask someone who's dying of cancer? Like, you're so insensitive. What the hell, man? Now you're going to make her think that she's dying. And, uh, right. And meanwhile, all she heard was whatever. And she went, oh, I'm fine. Hey, anyway, da, 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 da. you can't say the wrong thing. I'm just saying you can't. But, but, but we self, we so, for what even reason, 
if we're aware enough to not want to hurt somebody's feelings, we're not going to say anything because we don't want to say the wrong thing. <laughs> Do you know? Absolutely. It reminds me of, I've been trying to educate myself on this. And, and last year I wrote, read this book called It's Okay That You're Not Okay, which is about grief. And it's mostly written towards people who are handling grief. But I wanted to read it as a way to learn how to support people who are in grief. And around the time that I was reading it, someone in my life's father passed away. And I remember thinking, all right, I feel prepared. <laughs> I feel like I can respond better than I did before. And I tried saying something around like, what do you need? How can I support you? And and I was met with met with a response that I I don't know if it was actually helpful to them. And I thought, oh, great. Like, I thought I'd just learn how to respond to people better. But that still didn't feel like the right way to respond to them. And, and then I got really in my head and thought, was I asking too many questions? Was I trying to be overly supportive? You know, like, I feel like can it swing in the opposite direction for someone like me who's super proactive? Like I go into this immediate, I think you brought this up too, of like, how can I fix it? You know, how can I help? How can I be there? Like, I, it's almost like I feel too much, too helpful. And I want to kind of bring myself back into more balance. So how do you stop yourself from swinging too far in a supportive direction? You know, I don't think you can. I really don't think you can. Because if you're coming from a place of actually asking these questions and wanting to support them for them, that'll come through. If you're doing it to show them how great you are, it's not going to be a good thing. And sometimes uh, the last thing somebody wants is to talk about what they're going through. And sometimes the last thing that some people want is to rely on the fact that you're going to listen to them. You don't, you just don't know the answer. Let me give you, a, let me give you a story. Okay. So I'm doing this podcast with this guy and we're talking about, you know, some of the topics that we're talking about and we're done. And before we say goodbye, he goes, Hey man, can I tell you a story? And I go, yeah, for sure. And he goes, I had this buddy that recently died of cancer and you know, our talk really, really resonated with me because, because every time we got together, like, especially near the end of his life, like I wanted to talk to him, but God, man, all he wanted to do was eat pizza and drink a beer if he felt okay. And we wanted to watch sports or whatever. And I'd start asking him a question and he would like pretend like, like he didn't even hear me and he'd, he'd talk about the game or whatever. He goes, and I just wish I could have break broken through to him to like, like help him with some of these emotional issues. And I just, I really felt guilty about that. Let me ask you a question. I go, is it possible? I'm just saying, is it possible that you were the only person he didn't have to talk to about it? What if every single person in his life just brought him down? Like maybe he was tired of talking about what it felt like to die, right? Maybe he was tired of talking about this heavy stuff. You were the one person that gave him the freedom to just sit on a lazy boy eat a slice of pizza and watch the game. Wouldn't that be awesome to know that? He goes, yeah, it would have been. I said, okay, so I'm not telling you right or wrong. I'm not telling you I know the answer to anything. But next time you're in that situation, you really care about your friend. You want to ask some questions about how they're feeling and they're brushing it off. So can you just ask a question and go, listen, Whitney, I'm really sorry. I know this is invading your space, but are you telling me you don't want to talk about it because you don't want to talk about it? Or are you telling me you don't want to talk about it because you think I don't care? Or are you telling me that you don't want to talk about it because you're tired of talking about it? You're scared to talk about it? Like, I don't care. I just want you to know I'm asking because I really care. I'm asking because I care. It's okay if we don't talk about it. That's up to you. But I just want to know. 
Because if you want a safe space to talk, I'm here. And if you want a safe space to not talk, I'm here. Whatever you want. I just want to know if you can give me a little bit of direction here. I could either lay it on or I could back off. You tell me. That is, you can't go too far, right? Who's not going to welcome that, that, kind of, that kind of line of questioning? Yes. And I think that is really helpful, too, because I, I don't think enough people ask that. I wish more people would ask me that because I fall more into the category of not sharing things that are hard for me because I am often afraid of how people are going to respond. You know, I, I find myself when I'm going through a tough time, I'll sit there and think, who can I share this with if I want to talk about it? I'll go through a list and I, it's like I'm anticipating it. Well, if I share with this person, they're probably going to respond this way. So that doesn't feel good right now. And I'll have conversations with friends and find myself very passive because I don't feel like they're going to hold space for me in the way that I need. So what I'm craving is if they were to tune into me more and ask me what I needed in that moment versus assuming it. So you're absolutely right. And I think knowing that about myself can help me ask those questions of other people, which I find most people aren't really used to hearing because we don't ask enough of those. We don't, we, we start to just kind of assume or project onto others what we think is right. But if we could ask more of those questions, we may find that what we think are, is right is not right for them. Absolutely. But, 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 but here's the it main issue is that we can't assume it's going to be one way or another. The, the best thing to do is to ask the question or to allow yourself the permission to let them ask you questions or vice versa. Because I'm guessing you mentioned something earlier about, you know, kind of wanting to please people or for me, I wanted to fix people rather than fix myself, but I wanted to fix people. So sometimes I wouldn't tell people the traumas or the burdens that I had because I was not wanting to bring them down. I was looking out for them. Like, honestly, like, why am I going to burden somebody with my issue? Right. Meanwhile, maybe that'll stop me from allowing people that care about me to get close to me, but it'll also allow me to not bring them down. But who am I to say one way or another, what might bring them down? Maybe they needed to hear, maybe like when I, I'm managing an office of people, right? I'm managing a big office of people. I got four-year-old twins and my big trauma of the time was I was married to a physically abusive alcoholic. Okay. I absolutely guarantee none of my employees knew. They would have no idea. Now, if a couple of them were friends and a couple of them cared, I might have said something. Most likely I wouldn't have at that time in my life, but I might have said something. And what I might have stopped myself from doing is saying something because I don't want to bring them down. I don't want to burden them. I don't want to think what less of me. I didn't, I didn't, right? Maybe it was the best thing to do was to talk to them about it because maybe they were going through the same thing or knew somebody that was going through the same thing. And maybe they were hiding something that they wanted to, who knows? But I'm just saying, if you want to make a true connection with people, if you want to have a heart-centered, human-to-human, real-life, grounded, authentic, lasting interaction with people, you have to give yourself permission. You have to make it safe for the other person. Right. These are these are hard, hard things to do. I know plenty of people in my life I'd like to have a heart to heart with, but I can't find the common ground to do that. Right. Because it's not safe. It's not safe for them or it's not safe for me or they're not giving me the space. or They don't want to go there and I can't I can't force people to go there. 
But if I know one or two questions in, if somebody's going through something difficult or if there's some kind of bridge that we could form between you're on this island about this object and or subject and, and I want to join you on that island about that subject, if I know we can build that bridge pretty easily by just asking a few questions, we'll do it, right? Because how am I to say that I don't know the answer. Maybe it's the best thing you could do is burden those friends with, with your issue. How do you know? That is a fantastic question. I haven't really thought about it that way. And it also reminds me of how I just feel so drawn into that more so than I have a deep distaste for small talk. Anytime I start hearing not trigger words, but they're, well, they're words that trigger me to shut down, which is when people start saying things that feel cookie cutter. Like, you know, when you ask somebody, how are you? And they say, I've been busy. I'm like, immediately a wall goes up. I'm, I'm like, everybody could say that. I don't even like the word busy. So that in itself is a, is a trigger word, but, or I'm good, right? Like, it's like, I'm somebody who, if I ask you how you are, I, I wanted to hear it all. You know? <laughs> but then I also wonder, as and I'm reflecting on this now, as I'm taking on them. And sometimes that's a way for me to avoid talking about myself. I'll put myself in a position of just listening so that I can avoid sharing about myself. Part of that is I'm not used to people really asking how I am. I'm used to people asking how I am assuming I'm going to say, oh, I'm good. And then they can move on. Kind of like what you're saying too, David. I think that's a fascinating thing to reflect on. The way that we try to steer clear of challenging conversations. If we can just have these surface level small talk exchanges, we don't have to get uncomfortable. We don't have to put ourselves in unfamiliar places or places that feel unsafe or whatever it is, like if we just continue to share these phrases that we can just pull out and move on and then we can talk about what the weather's like or, you know, <laughs> whatever else, all of those things that we find ourselves in. But to also to your point, David, I think deep down, each of us yearns for the deep conversation. And I'm curious if you found that to be true on your travels. Your book is about 5,000 miles. Right? I'm curious, first of all, is there significance in that length? Why did you go that far? Did it just happen to be that far? And then what did you find along the way? Were these mostly strangers that you were talking to? How did you find these people? Yeah, let me frame it for you a little bit. So when my sister passed away, it entered into my orbit, this idea that I felt compelled to want to explore why are people so ill-equipped to deal with the emotional side of their trauma, Okay. Not, not to give answers, but just to see what's there because I don't know the answers, right? So if I'm going to see what's there, I got to interview people. So I, what I wanted was a range of ages. I wanted uh, different types of cancer, uh, different uh, times that they had cancer severity. I wanted a perspective of a caregiver, a receiver, patient, loved one, family member, right? I wanted different emotional responses because how am I to assume that everybody's going to be angry with cancer? Man, one of the, my book participants um, uh, cried tears of joy when she heard she had brain cancer. How am I to explain people would shake their head, go, really? She was told she had brain cancer and she cried tears of joy? Yeah, I can tell you the story behind that, right? So who am I to assume that everybody has the same emotional responses to things? So I just went to go look. 
if I talk to all of those people with totally different experiences, wide-ranging traumas in their in their young adult and, and childhood, how did those traumas affect their ability or their inability to navigate the emotional side of what they were going through, both with themselves and in their interactions with others? If I could tell these stories in a compelling way, then maybe we could learn something. That's that's what I wanted to do. So I cold called hospitals, cancer centers. I asked friends, hey, who do you know? Like anybody I, I should speak to. I talked to one person that led to somebody else. And I just tried to find all of these people I could talk to. So when I had a big basket of people I could talk to, I started interviewing. Hey, tell me a little bit about yourself, whatever. And I kind of got the points of their lives, like the little points, low highs and lows. And then if I was able to, and if they were willing with me, I try to connect those points. Okay. Now, some people I wasn't able to get deep with. Some people were not able to get deep with me. Some people, when he connected the points, they were pretty linear, not a lot of highs and lows. So I didn't know that we could get a lot of insight into it. But the 15 that made the book, unbelievably evocative, inspiring, moving, relatable, like phenomenal stories of just these ordinary people that just have these extraordinary lives like most of us do. And I interviewed them for a couple of years. Then just as kind of like a gimmick, in my, in my case, I like to do endurance athletics. I thought, well, if we're all tied together by emotion, we're tied together by story. Why don't I tie us together? Like I, I'm the thread that ties these stories together. The thread, you know, on, on zigzag, you know, those old movies that the line when somebody's flying from city to city, that little red line that goes, yeah. So I'm I'm the I'm the zigzag. I'm the line that 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 ties these stories together. So I said, ah, oh, just get on your bike and go see them all for the first time. So I had to zigzag my way across the country, and then I, so I went basically California down Florida, across Florida, and then up to New York. That's basically I zigzagged away, and I said, you know, wow, I, I get to meet them for the first time. So I was those stories of the bike ride and the people I met along the bike ride are kind of the transitions, the little points that connect these their stories together. Once you get to the, the one of the 15 stories, it's a self-contained its own story. And then you get a little transition about the bike ride and people I met and my thoughts about losing my sister and you know whatever else is going on in these short little transitions. So that's the that's the format and the structure of the book. That is so cool. I'm also very interested in what the actual ride was like and how you were shifting. Because, I mean, I, I'm envisioning you go. I mean, it's an incredible feat just to go that distance on a bike from my perspective. I think there's so much that you must have learned about yourself. And, you know, given my my experience of that is being in a car. And I know there are a lot of challenges driving around the country in a car. <laughs> <laughs> but like a bike, you're adding a whole nother level of vulnerability in some ways, but also it's just a different experience because you're you're part of the elements in a new way. I'm also interested that like how did you how did you navigate yourself while also being there for all these other people, right? Because you the travel in itself is challenging then your emotional reaction to each of these people and then you're going to the next person after that did you have a process of kind of resetting yourself 
did you take a lot of time? Did you feel rushed? I, I want to hear some of those details. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was pretty crazy. So let's do the math. I did 4,700 miles in 45 days. So I took four days off along the way for, for rest. One, one day forced by a hurricane, but but four days off along the way. So 41 days, 4,700 miles, that's like 120 miles a day. Okay. And I was a solo and self-supported for a good majority of it. I had my wife, or she was my fiance then there with me, um, but she was in the car back and forth, you know, to hotels or whatever. But I was having to go or choosing to go, didn't have to do it, you know, 100 to 150 miles a day, day after day after day on a heavy bike, carrying a lot of gear out in the elements. It was really, really hectic. And you know this from your uncles. I mean, putting in 100 miles is hard, but putting in 100 miles solo is really hard. Putting in 150 miles, 140 miles, especially on hills, especially in the wind. And I, I left September 1st. So I had the heat of the Southwest, you know, really, really hot. And the first 12 days, the the high never was below 100. So it was hot, hot, windy, long distance, self-supported, heavy bike. And add to the fact that I was on interstates because I couldn't take back roads. You can't do that when you're trying to get from point A to point B. I had to be on the interstate. So I'm dealing with the stress of 70 mile an hour trucks whizzing by and flat tires all day long from the little steel belted radials that pop, you know, those, those get into your tubes. I was changing tires all, all day, every day. I mean, it was hectic, but immersed in all of that, like once you, once you go to quote unquote battle, and I don't mean to belittle, you know, people's battles with health or, you know, real war or something, something, not, not those kind of battles, but once you're in like that kind of a battle, you really get to get deep into it. And so in the background, every day, all day, the stories were churning in my head. My talks with everyone, one, you know, I would, I would replay over and over and over my talks with people so that I could really like start to formulate like how I envision, you know, their stories going, how I was going to tell their story in an authentic, real way. You know, I, I, I really just lived with these people in a real purposeful way over that 45 day period so that when I got back, I'd be a little bit more in tune with kind of going about writing the book. <laughs> it's not like I just, I talked to you and then I wrote a paragraph. I talked to you the next week and I wrote another paragraph. It was not like that. I talked to you for a year and a half or two years. I made a ton of notes, but I, I got to let the story marinate. I got to figure it out. I got to give it some perspective and, you know, really understand the whole thing. And then I can sit down and write it. And so I was able to kind of, I don't know, bake like, you know, bake the cake, you know, of each story along the bike ride, because that's when it could really cook. That is just deeply fascinating. To me. <laughs> I mean, I, I really want to read this because uh, I just feel like there's, it's a big story. And because again, there's, there's so many layers to the travel and you and what inspired you. And I'm curious, when did all this take place? Well, so my sister died in 2007 um, or 2008, one of those two years, I forget. Um, and then uh, I kind of came up with the idea for the book a couple of years later. It kind of really got its form. I think I started talking to people about 2011, 12 maybe. 
2016, I went for the bike ride. 2017, 18, wrote the book. Then it got edited and then it goes to the publisher. And that's a whole nother year, you know, back and forth and back and forth. Then I had to send the stories to everyone to make sure that they were okay because they're not anonymous. There's two stories in there that are anonymous because um, they mostly involved relationships with kids and the parents didn't want the kids to relive the really hard traumatic parts of the story. Um, and so we made two of the 15 stories were anonymous, but the stories were still, they had to be accurate. And the non-anonymous ones, I mean, you could look up the names of the people in the book. Those are the, that's really the doctor. That's really them. That's really the things they went through. Good, bad, ugly. It's all out there in the truth, right? And we talk about suicide and cheating and drug addiction and going to prison and making bad decisions in life and, you know, being an idiot. And now they're not married to the same person that they were married to when we started talking. I mean, there's all this right, real life stuff and it's real. So then I had to get there okay to sign off on the story that I got their life proper and that they were okay with me sharing it with the world, right? So that was a little bit of a process. So this was not a real simple deal. This was going on in the background for several years. And then the book came out, you know, just about a year ago. I'm so glad that you shared that. I am just blown away by how long of a process this was for you. I mean, <laughs> this is a whole nother level of a layer of a journey for you. It's like <laughs> the journey of just getting a book done is just, I've been through it, but I had a really rushed process with my book, my published book. And just thinking of how much went into yours, I just it's a lot. It's, I think, incredibly important because not a lot of people know how much can go into a project like this. They might think it is really simple and you're writing down these stories, but the behind the scenes of just getting it out there are really important to take note of, don't you think? I mean, did you realize it was going to take this much when you started this project? I didn't know, but look, uh, I took it really serious. And the reason... Uh, these things evolve, but but let me, let me just tell you two things I think that were that will answer the question in a way most people can understand. Okay, one is I don't care who it was, doctor, patient, loved one, survivor, whatever. Every person I spoke to multiple times, if not only a few times, but I think multiple times said to me, well, all right, since we're talking about it, I'm going to tell you something I never told anybody ever before. Okay. And I mean, we're talking about really hardcore stuff, right? real life, hardcore stuff. And I said, man, they're trusting me with this. I mean, it needs to be told. And the fact that they're willing to share it with the world and they've never told anybody about it, that meant another level. And I admire people that write memoirs. I admire people that tell their story, but you can also understand that there's another level of urgency to do the right thing when you're responsible for telling somebody else's story. So if, uh, if if you were to tell your story, you're not going to be as <laughs> nervous that you're doing such a good job as if I tell your story. Because if I tell your story in a true, authentic way, uh, especially about things you've never talked about or that you've never told anybody else, if I take on that responsibility, man, I better do it right. And And I learned along the way that it was a greater task than what I had originally set out to do because, you know, I, I mean, I, I know some, some of the book participants might listen to our talk, but but one in particular, not, not to pour salt on a wound, but uh, this guy disclosed to me that he had walked in when he was six years old on his mom killing herself. 
could you imagine the trauma that is carried along with not knowing that your parent died, but watching them do that to themselves? Could you imagine? I mean, it's just, it's the most heartbreaking thing ever. And he's a wonderful human being, whatever. But it, it kind of gave another layer of perspective to why he would not accept help when he was going through cancer. Because he didn't want people to abandon him. He didn't want to reach out and then have them say no. Because he didn't know how to rely on anybody. Because obviously after that situation, how's he going to rely on anyone? So he went through his cancer alone purposefully. But then how did he choose to then allow himself to be loved and allow himself to love others? And how did he end up settling into being okay with being weak and being and needing people and knowing that he can rely on people? It's a great journey. It's a tragic one, but it's also a wonderfully inspiring journey. So when I got to tell that story, well, you better believe I better do it right. And so that was a joy. It was a big responsibility that I, I was given and that I chose to do, but these people relied on me to tell their, their stories authentically and, and truthfully. So I, I needed to make sure I did it the right way. Wow. I mean, even hearing you describe that in limited detail really is intense and it kind of answers, but I still want to ask this question of why is it important for people to tell their stories, either themselves or through someone like you? Uh, I don't, I'm not going to preach. Okay. But I think it's important to tell your story to yourself in an honest way. We talked this, about this earlier, this transformation, right? Telling your story in an honest way allows you to then free your mind and then learn and move on. And if, if we don't tell our stories in a truthful, honest way, we're never going to move from where we are now to who we could be. So the most important thing is be honest, tell your story. Now, maybe that tell your story is just look in the mirror and going, yeah, I'm a loser. I need to not be a loser anymore. Okay. Or whatever. But it's a telling your story in an honest way allows you to like go, okay, now I can purge it and I can move on. And, and I think that that's the most important thing of telling your story is honestly, just, just tell it honest, right? It's okay if you failed. It's okay if you made bad decisions. It's okay if you're a jerk in your life. It's okay if bad things happen to you. It's okay if you didn't respond properly. It's okay if you lived your whole life as a, as a people pleaser and now you regret it. It's okay. Just be honest. Tell your story. Now, let it go. Forgive yourself. Move on. You didn't know any better at the time. You know better now. And learn. Lean, lean into it and learn. So I think, why is it important? Number one, it's, it's a change engine to be able to tell your story. It's a change engine for you. The other thing is, is that if you do really care about making a deeper connection with other people, and you can't do this with everyone and not everybody is going to want you to do it with them, but by telling your story in a true authentic way, it might possibly help somebody else deal with something that they're going through. Not, not in a preachy prescriptive way, but just in a, oh man, you mean I'm not the only one that's dealing with this? Right. I'm not I'm not the only one that is always looking to get other people's approval. Well, that's nice. I'm not the only one that's ashamed of something I did when I was 23. Right? I'm not the only one that made a bad decision in life. Right. Or whatever. The, the thing is, is just by hearing stories that are relatable. That I can go, oh, 
right, maybe I can learn something from that. I noticed just now, but also throughout this conversation, you've emphasized two words. One is authentic and the other is honest. And I'm curious why you feel so compelled to emphasize them. Do you feel like people aren't honest and authentic when they tell their stories? Do we need more of that? And what do you think is getting in the way of us being honest about our stories? Yeah, I do. I totally do. I mean, I'm only saying it from first person, okay? From my first person. I was very, very, very good at deceiving myself and deceiving other people. Very, very good at it. Maybe sometimes for the greatest intentions, okay? Maybe for the greatest intentions, okay? But um, but there comes a time when you need to not try to be the person that you want to be or you got to not pretend to be the person that you want to be. You just got to be the person that you want to be. And it's a big difference, right? It's a big difference. And I, I get it. You need to protect people from bad things. You don't want to tell your kids that, you know, their, their, their parent was a terrible person. You don't want to bring other people down to know that and you're living with, you know, this, this bad decision that you made. And I know it's hard. It's not so linear, right? We can't all just be this open book walking around showing our wounds and showing our whatevers. But honestly, honestly, like, don't you want, the few people that you want to have a deep connect with, don't you want to do it in a real way? Like, it's okay that you're stupid sometimes. It's okay that you do the wrong thing. It's okay to have that excuse of, I intended to do well and I still fucked up. Or, I still messed up, right? It's okay to do that. But we don't do that. I mean, how many times do you do a project at work and you don't know what the hell you're doing and you fake it? Right? I'm sure that happens to everybody, right? And then we go, okay, well, I, I can't be an imposter. I, I got this position. I better figure out. Uh, uh, and we're just, sometimes you, you're just not, we're, we're just not honest. How many people literally got all the sleep they needed to get, didn't drink too much last night, ate super healthy, called out every friend that needed a, a phone call that day, made their bed, right? Excuse me. You did everything perfect today. Let's be honest, right? We're not perfect. And it's okay. I think that phrase, it's okay, is so important to hear. And it also, it ties back into my challenges with small talk or, or people not having the right words. Maybe we're all just out of practice because we've been conditioned to hide things about ourselves. We've been conditioned to feel ashamed and I really resonate with your passion for honesty and authenticity because I want that deep, rich, true experience. I don't want the surface level, but I also have to, along the way, learn to let go of shame and discomfort because we've also, I think, had these messages that we should avoid pain. So you are just the perfect person to come on a show like this to talk about <laughs> how it's okay for things to get uncomfortable and know that it's not always. I mean, you, you also embodied the, the title of, of this podcast, This Might Get Uncomfortable. You may go into what you think will be an uncomfortable situation and it won't be. To your point as well, like when you brought up that woman who felt joy when she heard her diagnosis, it actually wasn't in my interpretation, uncomfortable for her. 
it was a bit of the opposite. So I think one of the biggest messages you're sharing here is to not make assumptions because everybody experiences life in many different ways. And I would love to see more people just go about life with the curiosity and asking the questions. And you've really inspired me to continue to do that and and do it more because I, I think it's a daily reminder to not make assumptions and not place judgments and not project our own viewpoints onto others. And if we can practice that every single day, I think we get stronger at it and it connects us. And I just love that about your work. Thank you for writing the book and thank you for coming on here to share it. Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate that. And you know, it's a, it's a great conversation and and I love talking about it. I'm never not excited to talk about these things because you know, even this far into this journey, I'm still profoundly affected by the fact that you just don't know what people are going through or what they have gone through. And, you know, again, I'm, I'm going to sound repetitive, but if you go through that process of, you know, you just know what you know when you know it, and if you can be honest and then let it go, I'll give you one last story. I'll leave you with one last story. There's a gentleman that I met on the bike ride. A uh, super quick story. So I'm in New Mexico. Uh, this big family's taking me out for brunch. And the dad uh, says to me, hey, this is such a good thing. He's like in his late 70s, early 80s. This is such a good thing. You're talking about the emotions of cancer. It's so important. You know, so important. He said, uh, you know, I had cancer like 15 years ago and I got over it. But that talking about it is so important. Then his daughter, it's like 50 years old, pulls me aside and says, oh my God, you know, this is so important. This whole thing that you're doing, it's so great because the trauma and the emotional side of it is like, oh, she goes, when I had uh, stage three breast cancer, I had a double mastectomy. I became a, a patient, uh, a lobbyist for patients' rights rather than be a nurse. It really affected my life. And I know that navigating the emotional side of this thing is so difficult. I'm really glad you're doing what you're doing. So I get ready to leave and I stand up and I say, hey, you know, not every family is as close as you and able to talk about these things as you guys are. And I look over at the dad and the daughter and they both got their hands in their laps and they both are looking down. And I go, what? You guys just told me that you talk about this, right? You talk, right? And they go, no. And he goes, you know, I, when I was going through my cancer, I mean, I'm old school. You don't show weakness. I'm, I got to be there for my family. I don't want to bring them down. I don't want to m- burden them with what I was going through. You deal what you deal when you deal with it. And that's that. And I'm like, but you just told me how important it is. He goes, it is important, but I didn't do it. And then I look at the daughter and I said, you? And she goes, no. I mean, I had a little bit of a sense of what my dad went through, but could you imagine me asking him about something he didn't want to talk about years ago just because I'm going through this and I feel guilty? Like, what if I die? And then he's got, my dad's going to lose a daughter. And she goes, no, I don't like, oh, I could never talk to him about this stuff. And I go, but you just told me how important it was. And they are like, we did. So a couple of weeks later, I'm in Florida and I get a call from my buddy. It was his sister and his dad. And he's like, dude, I just had dinner with my dad and my sister and they talked and they laughed and they cried about the cancer and they had this deep discussion about it. And they talked about the emotional thing and where they were at at the time, why they weren't able to do what they are doing now, why they weren't able to do it earlier. And they, they navigated this discussion and they, they bonded about this, this trauma and the emotions of it in a way that they hadn't ever done before. 
And it like hit me like, oh my God, you know, like, you know what you know when you know it. And when you find a safe space and when you can, and when you can have an opportunity or make an opportunity to have a deep connection with someone in your life, you just got to take a, a jump. He wasn't able to do it 15 years before. She wasn't able to do it five years before, but now they were able to do it, right? So know where you're at, be honest, forgive yourself, like free your mind and lean in and learn. That they formed a super deep connection over something that they might not have talked about had not somebody given them a little bit more permission. That is powerful. And I hope that your book and this podcast episode gives other people permission. Truly, that is one of the most powerful things that you could give to another, don't you think? Mm -hmm. And to yourself. Yeah. Yes. Well, you have certainly done it for me. I, I feel just really moved by these stories, but just your ability to get people to open up and encourage them and remove these barriers to talking about these important things. That is really amazing work that you're doing. I'm, I'm just deeply grateful for you being here. And I'm curious if you're, what's next? Like now that this book has been out for a year and a half now as of the time of this recording. So are you working on another one? Are you? Yeah, <laughs> I'm always working on books in the background. Some of them are related. Some of them are not related. And yeah, I'm just uh, doing the things that everybody's doing, which is trying to, you know, accomplish as much why we're here as we can. So I, uh, I'm thinking about my next book that's like this, but I haven't quite wrapped my brain around it yet. But I've got a book about uh, just a couple of fiction books I'm working on. I got I got a number of different things I'm 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 doing, and I'm always trying to live what I talk about, which is like just deal with what you know today and just start today. And so, you know, the fact that I didn't write these books over the last 30 years is fine. I'm doing it now, right? <laughs> the fact that I that I gave up 20 years to overeating and smoking, who cares? I'm still training for Ironmans, you know. So that's 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 what's coming up for me is just continue to. Uh, to find out what I can learn. I will link to your book and your website and all the different ways that someone can dig into more of who you are and what you do. Everything is over at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. There's a full transcript with the quotes, the links, the book, the bio, everything is there in one place so that you can go check out this wonderful book as I will. Is there an audiobook version of it? There is, and two things. One, yes, the audiobook <laughs> is amazing. I had 15 uh, professional voiceover actors each do one of the chapters. So, And did you read the rest of it? I read the transitions, <gasps> and cool. each one of them read, read one of the stories. So it's really fascinating because each story is its own. And by the way, subnote, it's not a book about cancer. It's a book about people, and you'll get that. And then the second thing, and I, I've... I probably should have said this earlier in case people have dropped off because they're they're tired of me, but um, 100% of the net proceeds from the book go to support the cancer-focused charities that were chosen by the people in the book. So those charities are listed in the book. They're listed on my website, cycleoflives.org. And yeah, so not only do you maybe get inspired and maybe get moved and maybe grab a tool for your emotional tool belt, but you also raise a little bit of money for cancer care and research. So 
That's wonderful. I I will make sure to put that earlier up in the show notes so it's not to be missed. (laughs) Thank you so much, David. I appreciate you. You are just doing remarkable things and uh, keep keep moving, keep keep going. I maybe one day we'll we'll cross paths when I pass through your area, and I'd love to connect and see you in person. We will. We'll stay connected for sure, Whitney. (laughs) Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.